0: When you recognize people as people and you recognize that they come in all different ways, you design whatever it is so they can achieve it, Mm -hmm. so they can access it. And I never forgot that. And that's been my career path all along.
1: Welcome everyone to Do Well and Do Good. You're here because you have the desire to create financial freedom, but you also want to make a powerful, positive impact on the world. This podcast exists to tell the inspiring stories of men and women who have achieved both, people who do well and do good. I'm your host, Dorothy Ilson, and I'm here to help you discover proof that individuals have the ability to make a massive impact. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 54. I am so excited that you're here. And before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind you that in just a couple days, we'll be hosting the Vote for the Do Well and Do Good Challenge. That will be happening on March 1st inside of our free Facebook group. And you can make your voice heard on which of the nonprofits nominated this month that we'll be making a donation to on behalf of the podcast. So if you'd like to participate, head over to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook to join the group. Today's guest is none other than Dr. Kate Anderson Foley. Kate is a special education expert with over 30 years of experience guiding public school districts and states towards equitable and integrated services for all. She has really witnessed the very best and the very worst that education has to offer. And her work has been grounded in social justice and really in breaking down the barriers for children who have historically been marginalized. Now as CEO of the Education Policy and Practice Group, Kate partners with local, state, and national organizations, education agencies, and various industries providing her expertise and consulting services. In the first half of this interview, Kate shared with me how she followed her moral compass towards a career in uplifting the ignored. And then later, you'll hear her break down exactly what she thinks is wrong with our education system today, what needs to change, and how she is actively working to pursue that vision. I just loved my conversation with Kate, and I know that you will as well. So without further ado, here it is. Kate, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm excited to have you here.
0: Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad
1: to be here. Well, so help us set the stage. I I actually read an article that you published saying that it was a fifth grade social studies project that first awakened your passion for serving these marginalized groups of people. Could you share that story and just a little bit about what life was like for you growing up?
0: So I came from a middle-class background young parents in the 60s, and I had in me just this innate sense. Uh, Some people have called it like I was uh, an old soul that's in this particular body at this particular time. And so I was one of those children that was quiet. I became invisible. I watched, I listened, but I listened to not only the words grownups were saying back in the 60s, but how they were saying it. There was something that tugged at me that said, hmm, this doesn't seem right. This is not right. And so it was at that particular time, I was about nine years old, and that social studies project on Harriet Tubman, and the light bulb went off, the lightning bulb just struck with me and said, that's it. That's what I've been trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. Didn't have the words for it, didn't have the context for it. Oftentimes, when you grow up in a white uh, neighborhood, that's all you know. I said, there's more to this world than just my surroundings. Mm-hmm. And that was what started my path for uh, not only the personal, but my professional.
1: So you started your career as a special education teacher. Right. What drew you to that path specifically? Yeah.
0: So again, my family was uh, middle class. Uh, we were, they were all business people, entrepreneurs, or they were in education, some were in medicine. But there was a certain you know, path, if you will, right. for family. I, my path was actually business. And then I went into pre-med. I was going to uh, be a physical therapist. Oh, wow. I was taking um, classes and I just said, this isn't right. I'm going to listen to my gut. And my gut was always around people who had been marginalized. Before that, I taught... I was a lifeguard and taught swimming to disabled individuals. And I always liked the fact that when you recognize people as people and you recognize that they come in all different ways, you design whatever it is so they can achieve it, Mm -hmm. so they can access it. And I never forgot that. And that's been my career path all along. And that's been the work that I've done.
1: Was your family supportive of you making that major change in direction to go to, towards teaching?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think they did. I mean, in special education, I think they didn't know, quite know what it was. You know, it's important to put some context to it. So I graduated in 78, and the federal special education law had only been enacted since 1975. People with disabilities had been institutionalized. They weren't in schools. And so those first three years, like for my high school, this was all brand new. And I saw it as a way of, this is what Harriet Tubman talked about. This is about, you know, my other hero, Dr. King. He talked about, this is what this was about. It was about social justice and creating the conditions so they can access their learning. And you open the doors to public education.
1: It's mind-boggling. I mean, that that was only, what, 44 years ago that that happened. And how did your preconceived ideas of what education is like or should be like for special needs students compare to the realities of what you saw going on in schools when you first started?
0: So it's important to know that at first, I went to education kind of kicking and screaming because I thought business... I, was, I grew up in the a civil rights era. Mm. I grew up in the feminist movement. Mm. I was an early activist and protester. Love and it. so when I went to school to go into education, I had to grapple with the fact that that was predominantly a female occupation. And yet I wanted to do something different. Mm. And I wanted to take my personhood into a different space and blend the business with the education pieces. And so that's what I did. Now, when I first started teaching, the concept of what's called mainstream was new. And I started to teach and I had two city school districts that I was working with. And in one school, the fight was this. Students were in my classroom. A variety of students were in my classroom. There was not one profile. I actually, when they didn't know what to do with somebody, they got put in my room. Because I knew, like, how do you start to take it apart so you can put it together for them in a way that they understand it? That was a great experience. I was a teacher for nine years. I always knew I wanted to go into administration and grand leadership. What I encountered, well, number one, I was an advocate for my kids, but I was also trying to partner with teachers, general education teachers, and break down the barriers so they would be welcome in their classrooms, but that they could access the learning And what you often found, uh, not only from back in 1989 when I first started to uh, my leadership positions in Ohio and Illinois, was that there were still people that said, Well, they're sitting in my classroom. That's good enough. Now, you would never say that about a general ed kid, would you?
1: (laughs) Right, of course not.
0: (laughs) Right. Or about
1: your own child.
0: (laughs) Your own child, (laughs) exactly. And so I've always said, your special education, but your general education first. You're a student first, mm-hmm. and then you have all these things that you know the student comes with. That's been the work. That's been the hard work. Shipping Just the mindsets of of teachers, teachers themselves, the hearts and minds, and the mindset. That's exactly right. Right. So, very fixed mindsets of some people, and others were have an open mindset to say, "Not quite sure how to do this, but I'm willing."
1: Well, and I think what you're talking about is. Really applicable beyond the the reaches of special education, I mean whether we're talking about a disability or race or gender, yeah. could you talk a little bit about your your ideas around the way that we label people and the way that we really put these identity markers you right. know as the primary focus of a person rather than their actual accomplishments or, or ideas
0: right, so as I pursued my career and now in my, my business, this was always my mantra, that the education system itself needs to be interrupted and interrupt from the deficit-based practices. And by that, I mean what you just alluded to. Let's test and slot the kids. Instead of saying, here are all the students. They come from a variety of backgrounds, be it race, um, gender identity, special education, economic disadvantagement, giftedness, whatever. How do you create the conditions in order for kids to access learning? That is the hard question because that means the adults have to look at themselves, have to look in the mirror and say, hmm, I've got some biases, so how can I override them? So I'm putting together lessons or I'm making sure that kids, let's say, who have trouble reading can access something via the use of technology or anything else, or maybe they're a strong auditory learner. And so creating, again, those conditions. So the adult knows how to better respond to students and there in turn, students can access the learning and then demonstrate that they have, they've got it. So I just don't think, I think what I have found throughout my career is that the traditional education organization, it's just doesn't work anymore. It hasn't worked for quite a while. And so when I look at special education, I, don't, I always look at it through the eyes and the lens of general education and that it needs to be flexible, it needs to be nimble, so everyone can access it.
1: And is that idea something that you, know, you find support for you when, you, when you work with other people in administration and in school systems? Or you know, are people really stuck in this old mindset of you know, special ed first instead of general education first?
0: I think it, it varies, depends on where you are in the country. The reauthorization of the IDEA, that's the special ed law, needs to get reexamined. The last time it was, um, was you know back in the 90s. And so we've come a long way, right? right? And at the same time, the general education, federal law, was already reauthorized back in 2016. And so the disconnect is just, you know, it's just just out there. So... From the standpoint of education and access. So my role, especially when I was working at Chicago Public Schools and then through at the State Board of Education, I was able to advocate and put into a policy and practice those asset-based mindsets, those asset-based approaches. So as an example, uh, when I was with the State Department, you're going through the state plan process for the federal education law. And I was able to be an expert contributor on not only that from a everybody's standpoint, but from an equity standpoint, but then also the ways that's called differentiated support model. Um, it was eventually legislated into Illinois, and it's called Illinois Empower. It's a way of differentiating the level of support school districts would need in order to access all those supports and services, be it academic, social, emotional, health, and wellness.
1: I remember a long time ago reading about a study that was done on gifted students and the the different programs that they're in. And uh, the results, if I'm remembering correctly, was basically around this idea that a large portion of the results that these students were able to achieve actually was driven by the way that they were told that they're gifted, that they're smart, that they you know, have these abilities and that that was really a big driver of their performance. So how does, in the realm of special education, you know, what role does raising the expectations we have for individual students play into a child's ability to learn?
0: So Carolyn Dweck, her book on Mindset, is all about that and mm-hmm. i've done professional learning around that philosophy around that uh, that book if you will it's a hard again it's a hard nut to crack mm-hmm. but if you have an open mindset versus a fixed mindset it changes everything and just like you said if a teacher believes that a student is capable they're going to have advantage whereas a teacher who says you know You have X, Y, and Z that's going on. So I have lowered my expectations for your success. Mm. And that too is the self-fulfilling prophecy. I've seen it over and over. Mm. And to your point, yeah, it's been in research in many, many studies.
1: Could you explain what you mean by this open mindset versus fixed mindset? So
0: fixed mindset means you come with a set of assumptions that, let's say about a learner or about your life you know i can never do this i only have these types of skills so i am only going to be i'm only going to go for these types of jobs versus if you have a growth mindset you say okay so here i am i want to go there what's the path that i need to what what classes do i need to take mm-hmm. you know what do i need in order to um, get the job that i want as a teacher or as a principal or as a superintendent or as a state superintendent you say okay here are the conditions for the children. What do we need to put in place so you can start to mitigate some of those issues? How do you tear down the barriers? You know, you say they might not be achieving where we want to, but here's the important word, yet. And when you use that word yet, then it opens up for, hmm, so what could it, what, what would, start to take a look at what you can do in order to make that happen. That's the growth mindset that every educator needs. I would say every person needs in life.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's applicable to really any goal that we're looking to achieve. I mean, so many of the limitations that we have are really just placed there by ourselves. And so I love the way that you describe that, you know, shifting from I can't do this to how can I do this? as soon as you ask yourself the question, your mind is going to start to come up with the answers and show you different paths forward. So I think that is so powerful, whether we're talking about education or anyone achieving goals in business, in fitness, in personal growth, financial, you know, whatever it might be. You made a, this big career shift, you are know, going from teaching into administration, which you, you said was always your goal. So what, was that experience like for you, you know, working both in Ohio and then in the state of Illinois? Was it more difficult than you expected to, to impact change? You know, how was this experience for you in trying to get people to shift their attitudes and, and really implement policies that would be supportive of all students?
0: I would say that transitioning from teaching to administration wasn't that difficult where the difficulty arose was for the course of 20 plus years Mm -hmm. of trying to push a message and not push it down, but push it up. (laughs) And that means everybody needs to have ownership of this. Um, If you keep a, in my business, keep the student at the center of everything you do, then what kinds of policies, what kinds of practices do you need to put into place? What kind of professional development What kind of financial pieces um, do you need to have to support that? So I don't think it was hard making the transition. But what was difficult was, again, trying to change people's perceptions of how capable students are. And so when I'd say, let's move away from what's wrong with the student and let's ask the question, how smart is that student? How is that student smart? What's their learning program? What kind of strengths do they have? And then how do you leverage the strengths to get to the gap in the learning? So here's an interesting statistic. In special education, there's like 13 different categories of disability. The largest percent, about 80, 85% of special education across the nation, and this is replicated in states and districts, is what's called learning disability. And by definition... The students who have a learning disability, be it reading, writing, speaking, listening, um, math, things like that, have average to above average intelligence. Yet they're not achieving the way other kids who don't have disabilities. So that tells you a couple different things. One is what you spoke about earlier of those expectations. Mm -hmm. You now have a label on you. Teachers can, not everyone, they lower the expectation. They keep all the good stuff away from the kids. And that, by that, I mean all the good curriculum, all the challenging curriculum. They water things down or they say, hey, I don't need, you don't need to be responsible for that. And they've limited some of those uh, learning opportunities. But what has happened over the last 45 years is now we've created uh, generations of people who haven't gotten what you and I got. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's yeah. all the good stuff. So when you think about people who are marginalized, my work has been around not only disability, but children of color, children who have a different gender identification, because those were my kids as well, kids who had mental and physical issues that didn't qualify for special education, so the behavioral side of things. So my, uh, my wheelhouse, if you will, had a lot of spokes. Mm -hmm. and those were my kids and that was what I was advocating for. So even those tough, tough beating up kind of meetings and beating up kinds of experiences, I always kept the student in mind and that's what I do today.
1: How do resources play into this? So you mentioned you've worked in Chicago public schools and in a city like Chicago where there are limited resources and so many competing interests, How do we make sure that students are able to get the kind of individual attention that they need to be able to achieve bigger goals?
0: That's an interesting question. Um, It's a little tricky, too. So you know the city of Chicago, and you're right, it has a lot of different resource pockets. When I got there, I was charged with not only breaking down the silo between special ed and general ed, was looking at... The overall structure of the organization, looking at the finances, looking at the outcomes, you know, being able to measure outcomes. That was what I was doing, and I worked on a large strategic plan of trying to create a holistic system. Now, that was a big, lofty goal because the Chicago Public Schools is very bureaucratic, it's the third largest school district in the nation. But what I found was, um, and this is probably the ugly side of education is that many many adults in the education uh, system really were interested in protecting their jobs rather than advancing the learning of students. And so working through that, you know, there were some glimmers of hope. There were certainly pockets of that. I will tell you that depending on the zip code of Chicago, you either had access to great education or you did not have access to great education. And so when I saw the best in what education could offer, the worst was um, neighborhoods who didn't have the resources, building principals who didn't have, they weren't the right fit. Maybe their heart was in the right place. But, you know, education is not touchy-feely. It is a business. (laughs) And it is a, the business has a lot at stake. And so you can't just be, oh, I'm gonna, you know, you know, welcome everybody and you know, give them cookies and that. It's like, no, this is serious <laughs> business. Yeah. And if you don't have the skill set, you should not be sitting in that principal seat. Mm-hmm. And uh, principals set the tone and run the building. Yeah, and it's people's lives that are being affected here. I mean, these and that's exactly right. And that's and that's what I would often advocate for. Is like we're talking about a child's life. Now with Chicago, many of the families that I interacted with were also in special education. Mm. So it was generational. Like generational poverty, it was the same type of um, system. And they wanted their child in special education because they saw it as a way to protect their child. Meaning some classes were secluded, um, maybe a different high school school, was in their path, not in the big, scary high schools. Mm. And so parents often wanted their children in special education as a way to protect them from gangs and everything else. And so that's a heartbreaking and that's a hard conversation to have as well.
1: What do you think needs to change at a really fundamental level in order to be able to address these issues and really move forward in a meaningful way?
0: What I've been advocating for, and I'm certainly... Advocating for it now is fundamentally the education system, the K 12 education system must change. And it's not to say that it's wrong, but you only have the brick and mortar, you know, and only in the last 10 years, let's say, that people are really looking at different ways of delivering instruction be it flipped classrooms, be it online, blended learning, you know, the idea of being duly enrolled at high school into college, you know, those types of. uh, innovative ways, charter schools. Now, as a public school person, I've always advocated for there's room under the tent for everybody. So I'm not, an, I'm not against charters. I'm not against anything that's going to get kids a high quality education. So we need to move away from it's a this or a this. Public education has to change. And I've also said this, and I believe it to my core, Children, the way they're coming to school in the last 10, 15 years, you know, they're not the same type of student that the adult that's standing in front of them is expecting. (laughs) And the teacher prep programs need to change. I touched a little bit in that when I was at the state level to say, we have to prepare teachers for today's students and tomorrow's students.
1: What do you mean by that when you say that they're different than the expectations?
0: So when I was in school, when you were in school, the expectation was you're going to come and sit at your desk and you're going to get information poured over you. <laughs> There's going to be a certain amount that you get. Hopefully it's a large amount. And the rest, okay, you didn't get it. And I'm moving on. Whereas we know that kids don't learn in the, in the same path. Right. That bell curve, I would argue, should never have been introduced because... <laughs> We're we're all in a different place, but the challenge for teachers, challenge for schools is to have a large group of kids and going from grade to grade to grade. We need to rethink how public education is conceived, delivered, and uh, measured for progress. And that includes funding.
1: So is that vision the, the reason that you recently left administration to start your own practice?
0: yeah because I had uh when I was with Chicago and I saw such segregation and I saw such disparities in opportunity, and then when I was at the state, I started to, and i when I went there, I said, there is great urgency about my work because i'm on, I'm not going to be here this long because I was getting this internal tug that I needed to move into a different direction, and so I was kind of moving in that direction while still you know like tightrope over to the <laughs> you know the the, the world that I knew. And so coming into my own company, you know, even on my website, it says, this is about social justice and this is about interrupting deficit-based practices, be it business, politics, education, and flipping it and being ambitious and bold to say, how can we create an asset-based organization, mm-hmm. taking care of our people for school districts, taking care of kids, Taking care of the community, taking care of X, Y, and Z, yeah. and that's what I'm doing right now. Now I can tell you that it's not been an easy path.
1: I guess <laughs> I'm sure
0: nothing worthwhile is right.
1: Very true. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So it's so, kind of breaking in.
1: Yeah, so I know part of your your practice with the education policy and practice group is focused on the business sector and creating what you call growth minded organizational culture. Could you explain what that is and how businesses can start to move towards it?
0: Yeah. So as an example, um, I got... So when I moved back to Ohio about a year ago, and I knew I wanted to move in this different direction, I wanted to take my expertise in education, but in systems thinking, organizational leadership, and apply it to different industries. Looking at organizations and I'll speak to just the area right here in Cleveland, there's a lot of opportunity, but there's a lot of what I call the old guard that you know, there's people and, and silos that want to protect. And I come in and say, hey, how can we start to look at this in a holistic way? So as an example, the education of kids going into a college, but then wanting them to stay here, creating the environment, for people to want to come, stay, live, work, and enjoy. So one of the things that I'm doing it has gotten involved with um, Blockland. So that's the blockchain initiative. Mm-hmm. So Blockland Cleveland is a platform to create, let's make Ohio, let's make this region the tech capital of the United States. And people would say, what are you doing at the table? <laughs> And I say, because it has everything to do with education. However you look at it, K-12, higher ed, the adult who needs to be um, retooled, you know, that re-education or re-upped in their their, uh, education, look at the manufacturing. If manufacturing goes away, well, what's going to be in their place? So people have to get uh, retooled. And so um, working with uh, that, trying to create in the environment for economic development, working with thought leaders. And I'm on a couple different subcommittees with the Blockland Cleveland. One is thought leadership. That means big, bold vision. But I bring strategic thinking, strategic planning. I've held big, large, messy organizations. And I don't mean messy negatively. I'm like big, hairy kind of organizations. Right. And how do you start to look at things from a organizational perspective, not only big and bold, but then you've got to be able to drill down into the discrete veins of the work in order to then be able to have that flow back up. I mean, that's a living in an organization. So that's an example of one thing that I'm doing. The other uh, subcommittee is working with the talent retention and development. So how do we create the pathway for people who want to uh, work in this type of field who then want to stay in this area. Cleveland has high quality of life, a lower cost of living. Um, We've got the lake right in our front yard. Mm -hmm. So to that point then, I'm also working with uh, the Green Ribbon Coalition and I would invite any of your audience to come and uh, go on our website and then join, become an activist. You don't have to live here. The water is our greatest asset in the Great Lakes, Lake Michigan. Mm -hmm. Greatest asset yet we're not paying enough attention to it. But in Cleveland, unlike Chicago, it's not connected in a way that people can come and visit and take part in it. So my advocacy work is in creating the the connection. So as an example, um, we're proposing a land bridge. Mm -hmm. Many states have already done that. Many cities have already done that. If you look to uh, Philadelphia, Penn Landing, Dallas, Pittsburgh, the Highland in, in New York. They've created that man-made place, capped highways, so people can start to access things. And then you start to create the, the vibe, you create the environment, but then you create the economic development opportunities. Then people want to stay. Mm. you got, you know, right? you got all kinds of things.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, Kate, honestly, it's just so inspiring listening to you talk about your career because your passion for social justice, for people who don't have the same opportunities really shines through in, in everything that you do and on top of that all of these other things that you're pursuing to you know really create change in your local area and on a greater scale is amazing and um, one thing that I thought was really really cool that I, I saw you mention was that you're actually working on a children's book as well. Yeah. Could you talk about that you know what what the idea is behind the book and, and what drove you to create it? Thank you for um,
0: mentioning that. So I am writing a book and it's called Ida Finds Her Voice. And I'm going to let you research Ida. Ida Wells, she was from Chicago and she was uh, one of the heroes in the world. I'll leave it at that. And um, she broke through a lot of different stereotypes. So Ida is about, it's a story about a little girl who encounters a number of, I would say, unsettling situations that cause a variety of emotions. She encounters prejudice, discrimination, hate towards friends and family, and she's trying to make sense of it. But with the help of her little sidekick, her little owl, her friend, if you will, her stuffed animal, and her parents, she's able to put words to her emotions. And at the end of the book, she's able to stand up and speak out for love for tolerance, for inclusion of people, cultures, and all kinds of faiths. I am writing this book. Uh, it's kind of, she's, she's been living in, within me for a little bit of time now. And I said, based on what's going on in our world today, you know, we need it more than ever. The past couple of years, and I, I, it doesn't matter what your politics are. When you strip that away and you look at how it's impacting children and adults, you know, you have to do something. And so, again, going back to my early roots of being an activist (laughs) and, uh, you know, that protester to say, if I don't do it, well, who will? And so you take that personal ownership. And so I am trying to do it through Kickstarter, trying to get it up and running. I want part of the proceeds to go towards causes that address inequities. And so I'm trying to reach through like ACLU and other groups and, um, one of the neat things about this is I'm working on this book with, um, one of my cousins and she and I share similar paths, if you will. We've got, uh, it's not an all woman, uh, ensemble working on this book and, uh, we will get it out there. And if I could, I'll, I'll let you know. So maybe you can help support.
1: Absolutely. Is the Kickstarter, is that live now? Can people go find it? we're we're working on it so close. We're okay. almost
0: there. We hope to launch in March, so I'll let you know.
1: Okay. Well, once it is live, we will absolutely link to that in the show notes and and post it right. in our group so that everyone can go find it. And I really do think that the timing of this is is especially poignant. I mean, just like you said, regardless of whatever whatever side of the political spectrum that someone might sit on, the reality is is that the divisiveness the vitriol just the really negative emotional energy that surrounds all of these conversations that are going on at national level that impacts kids you know they hear that they see that and they aren't able to make sense of it because kids don't have this this sense of hate this sense
0: exactly of- And sometimes parents don't have the words to help their kids either. So this is a way of addressing both of those issues that the children can go, hmm, something's not right. And how do I start to think about that? And uh, the, the parents can also help their child.
1: Amazing. Well, this is definitely a book that we need in the world. So I'm so excited that that you are producing it. So Kate, thank you for everything that you've shared with us today. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. So I'd like to move into what I call the impact round. So I'm going to ask you a series of short questions and I'd like for you to respond with the first answer that pops into your head. You ready? Okay. Let's do it. So Kate, who has been the most impactful person in your journey to do well and achieve financial and career success?
0: So I would say this um, it's all the people who said I couldn't do something and all the women who said I could do something.
1: And who has been the most impactful person in feeding your drive to do good and really make an impact?
0: I mentioned in the very beginning of this uh, podcast it's Dr. King. Dr. Martin Luther King was the one who set my path. Um, another fabulous person that I learned about early on in life, and that is Shirley Chisholm, first African-American woman to hold Congress, and she actually ran for president. Wow.
1: Then, Kate, when you're having a bad day, what do you do to get yourself out of the funk? Do you have any sort of regular personal development practices?
0: I do meditate, and I do exercise, and I think those are important. But what I've always done for many, many years now, I look to a body of water. And whether I can physically go there or I mentally go there. And I look to the horizon because it's at the horizon that all possibilities reside.
1: That's beautiful. Then Kate, what book do you find yourself recommending to people most often?
0: Well, I have three books that I typically recommend if you don't mind. Let's hear them. (laughs) So one is like an academic focus. Mm -hmm. And here's a gentleman. His name is John Dewey. Okay. 19th century, <laughs> <laughs> all talking about meeting kids where they are. Wow. Get out of the classroom. Mm-hmm. let do project-based learning. That will not only teach the actual skills themselves, but it also help develop a life skill. Mm-hmm. Maybe they want to go into carpentry. Maybe they want to go into engineering. Better to do that than doing it, right? For sure. The next one is a personal book that I've read and I keep it on my, in my uh, nightstand in the guest room. So whoever comes to the house can always you know, pick up that book. And it is called Gift from the Sea. And it's from Anne Morrow Lindbergh. And she uses the analogy in the seashells, uh, moments in life and the passage of time. And as a person who's, I certainly don't consider myself older, but I know chronologically, I'm, I'm at a different point in my life. And those seashells, you pick up those seashells and you start to think about things in a different way. And then finally, um, I I came across this book last year and kind of resonated with me. And it's Brene Brown's book, Braving the Wilderness.
1: Yes, I've heard of this, but I have not read it.
0: So I read it, a friend of mine recommended it to me because uh, you know, just kind of coming back to a state and going into a different phase of my life, I'm like, okay, I got to kind of regroup here. So I read it, and there's a phrase that kind of resonated with me, and that is, and this speaks to the social justice, this speaks to life itself, that sometimes you need to brave the wilderness when um, you see things that aren't right, and you stand up for them, and people dismiss you or are angry at you or, you know, rebel against you. Sometimes you have to stand in the wilderness to go, I did what was right, and you wait
1: that out. I have heard amazing things about that book, so I'm so glad that you brought it up. And we'll link to all of those in the show notes as well. So okay. Kate, the final question of the impact round, what is the best piece of advice related to happiness that you would give our listeners? I would
0: say that um, follow your North Star. Each one of us has a moral compass, but we have to tend to it. It means you can't let your intellect override certain things. Mm-hmm know what's right and you know what's wrong. But when you follow your North Star, you might go into the wilderness at times, <laughs> but you're going to come out a stronger person, a deeper person, because you'll know yourself at a deeper, more authentic level.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just imagine if, if you hadn't have found the courage at the very beginning of your career to make that change into education instead of taking that path towards pre-med you know, how, how different things would be. And, and so I really do love that advice. I think it's, it's really something that all of us need to do. um, You know, taking that introspective look at what's important to us and then following that, even if it leads us somewhere scary.
0: Somewhere scary.
1: (laughs) Well, Kate, as you know, here in the show, we have what I like to call the Do Well and Do Good Challenge. So this is where I encourage our listeners who do want to give back to contribute to the nonprofits that are nominated by my guests. Could you tell me what organization you're nominating and why it's so meaningful to you? So my charity is
0: uh, Mazan. It's a Jewish response to hunger. Uh, It's a national advocacy organization working to end hunger among people of all faiths. Uh, On the United States and certainly Israel. And I chose that because I mean, I've always looked at uh, hunger as one. If you think about Maslow's needs, Mm -hmm. basic need, if you don't have food, you can't access all the higher levels of Maslow's hierarchy. And that goes back to you have to address those basic issues so you can have access to a lot of what other people of privilege have. Absolutely. If we want a better world, then we've got to start addressing some basic needs.
1: For sure. Well, we will link to that organization in the show notes and, and give some additional information there. Lastly, Kate, before we say goodbye, where can our listeners go to learn more about you, about the Education Policy and Practice Group and to mm-hmm. follow your content?
0: So I'm on LinkedIn, Kate Anderson Foley, PhD. And then um, I am on, uh, if you go to my website, www.ed policyconsulting.com.
1: Well, it has been such an honor to have you on the show today, Kate. I really can't tell you how much value I've gotten from this. And I know that our audience will as well. So thank you again for being here. Thank you so much. All right, everyone, that's our show. Now, before I sign off, I want to introduce any new listeners to how the Do Well and Do Good Challenge works. There are two ways that you can participate. The first is if you are looking to do more to give back, I encourage you to contribute to any of the nonprofits nominated by my guests. Send a screenshot of your receipt to challenge at dowellanddogood.co, and your donation will be included in our monthly tally of the tangible impact this podcast is having. The second way you can participate is absolutely free, and that's by voting. See, in the first couple days of each month, we host a vote inside of our free Facebook community to determine which of the nonprofits nominated the month before that I will then donate a portion of my advertising agency's profits to. It's an awesome way to make your voice heard and we've been able to raise money for some incredible organizations doing good in the world. So if you'd like to be a part of it, then head over to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook, where you'll find a link to join the group. Once you're inside, I'm also sharing tips, ideas, resources, and more to help you both increase your income and your impact. We're having so much fun inside there. So head over again to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook, and I'll see you on the inside. It means the world to me to earn your time. So thank you so much for listening.